Welcome back to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey. He's a member at Pease CRC in Pease, Minnesota. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. But we realize that whenever Reformation happens, in the history of the church, things get messy. And after the last couple of synods, nobody's going to disagree that things are really getting messy in the Christian Reformed Church. So we're having conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We're dropping episodes every single Sunday evening. It's also important for you to know that you are our marketing plan. We rely on you to spread the word about what we're doing at the Messy Reformation. We rely on you to share our content. We also rely on you to give us five-star reviews and provide good feedback for our podcast so that the algorithms push our content out into the world. You are our marketing plan. You can also support us financially on Patreon. All the money from Patreon is being used to fund online hosting and to build the platform of the Messy Reformation. You may even see a Messy Reformation conference coming in 2024. So keep your eyes peeled for an announcement. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part one of our Reflections on Synod with Ryan Brom. So, Ryan, why don't you just kick us off and tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and the church that you're currently serving? Yeah, so uh, I'm Ryan Brom. I've been pastoring for 18 years total. This is my second charge that I'm in. Um, I'm currently pastoring in uh, eastern Ontario, a town called Brighton, Ontario, small rural Ontario. I've been here for about eight years, a lovely community, really have a deep joy and appreciation for the people who are here. They're very kind, generous folk. Um, And I say that with a a deep sense of uh, like legitimacy and and love for who they are, that uh, the way they welcomed my family eight years ago, and they have uh, not changed their personality at all, that very gracious people with my faults and my shortcomings, um, and also deeply encouraging with my strengths. So um, it, it's a place that I don't want to leave anytime soon because it is just very life-giving for me. Uh, for my family, um, I've been married for 23 years, celebrated our anniversary last weekend. Um, I'm a father of five, and uh, we're a tri-national family. My oldest two kids were born in the States, so they're American. Um, my wife and I were both Canadian. My middle son, he's just Plain Jane, born Canadian. He was born in uh, Ontario. Uh, my youngest two kids came to us through adoption from South Africa um, a number of years ago. So my daughter came to us, I think it was 10 years ago from South Africa, and my son eight years ago from South Africa. So uh, one of the things that really struck me about having multiple citizens within our family, especially when like cheering for World Cup, like who, who do we cheer for? Because we've also got ethnically Dutch backgrounds. So it's like almost pick whichever country you're rooting for. Uh, with the multinationality represented within our family, I think it just really drives home for us uh, the beauty and the joy of our citizenship being in the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we can have different allegiances here on earth, but ultimately our citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. And so you said uh, you and your wife both grew up in Canada? Yeah, we're both Canadian. Okay. And did, was your first call then, was that in Canada? Have you been in ministry in Canada the whole time or were you in ministry in the States for a little bit? 
fully Canadian all the way through. Uh, the only time I spent in the States was my uh, three years at Calvin Sem. So uh, two years, uh, when I was in Calvin Sem, uh, that's when they had a full year internship. So my first two years were in school there. Third year, uh, I came back to Ontario and then back to Calvin Sem for my fourth year. And uh, all my ministry has been in Ontario. Okay. And then did you, uh, cause I was pretty surprised when you said you've been in ministry for 18 years. So did you come into ministry like early or what, tell us a little bit about your call to ministry? Yeah, I came in very early. Uh, cause in high school trying to figure out what was, what was I supposed to do with my life? Um, it, Hanging with a bunch of Pentecostals, uh, I had, I guess you could say, a Holy Spirit Pentecostal moment where I sensed the Holy Spirit just say to me, uh, go into ministry. And then my biggest struggle was what denomination do I want to end up in? Uh, do I want to stick with the CRC roots, reformed roots that I grew up in? Or do I want to switch over to this Pentecostal group that has helped me see the, the beauty and the joy of, uh, of uh, ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit? Um, in the end, I, I landed back with my CRC roots. The, the richness of the theology just drew me back. Um, I, I found that it, it answered all the questions, or I shouldn't say all. It had succinct ways of dealing with many of the questions and problems that I really couldn't find in any other tradition. So while I was born and raised in this tradition, I did not simply inherit my calling in this tradition because, well, that's just the way that it is. Um, I did explore uh, Pentecostalism, Baptists, uh, a little bit with Free Methodism, and a number of these things. And through all my exploration, I came back to the Reformed tradition because of the richness of the theology. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I've kind of bounced around quite a bit, too, before I landed in the CRC. But you said you grew up in the CRC. What was your experience growing up in the Christian Reformed Church? Uh, uh, that That's... An interesting question because I don't want to speak negatively of any of of my my history on that, mm-hmm. and, and yet the reality, my experience of what I grew up there was it was very much so an ethnically Dutch church, which this is what we did because this is what we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I didn't really encounter the living nature of God until I actually hung with the Pentecostals, who highlighted then that this is who the God is that you believe in. Like you know, you know a ton of stuff about him, but have you actually experienced him? Uh, so my experience growing up in the CRC was a lot of rote memorization as well as a lot of, um, I would just say legalism. Um, and yet still somewhere in that rote memorization and legalism, it laid down a rock solid foundation for me to be able to discern what the distinction between truth and uh, heresy is. Um, and so I am thankful for it. So I don't want to discount, even though my active memories of it was quite legalistic and lifeless there was clearly some deep uh, foundational stuff that the Holy Spirit was doing in that time that set me on, I think, a pretty good course. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting thing. I, I've thought about this a lot over the years because I started off in youth ministry and I, and I would talk to a lot of people and a lot of people who grew up in church and maybe left the faith or, or grew up and left and came back. And there were a number of people who said, you know, I knew all the right things. I just didn't believe it or I just hadn't experienced God. And uh, and I, I remember thinking, uh, eventually coming to the conclusion, because a lot of people would would hear that kind of a thing and then say, well, we need to stop focusing so much on this head knowledge, right? And we need to focus on the heart knowledge because the head knowledge obviously isn't enough. And so we need to do that. And, and what I eventually realized was, is actually the head knowledge needs, almost has to come first, right? You have to know something before you can actually love something. 
And so one of the one of the problems that happened in the Christian Reformed Church, and you're not alone in that experience. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people who had that similar experience in the Christian Reformed Church. That the problem was they went through a season of of life where they focused only on the head knowledge, um, and then forgot to show how that head knowledge changes our heart and and our loves, right? And so um, they they kind of missed that step. But then also, like I've been in other churches who who grew up in that situation where they grew up with that kind of just head knowledge or, you know, people who called it just dry, dusty, orthodoxy, catechism, memorization. And then they like tried to flip the other way and say, well, we're just not going to do that anymore because that was terrible. We're just going to focus on loving Jesus. And, uh, and that wasn't helpful either. Um, that, that didn't produce any good fruit. And I've been trying to encourage people over the years to try to like bring those two things together because I think they're not, it's not one or the other, right? Yeah, and, and I think what you described there describes pretty much every sphere of faith life, where there's always a razor's edge. You gotta, you, you gotta be balancing on it. Uh, you know, people who focus too much on grace. You know, the the claim of antinomianism. Likewise, the flip side of that, you focus too much on the law, and all of a sudden you become Pharisaical. And it, it, there's appropriate boundaries and positions for both. And and. Mm-hmm. Ex- extrapolate that out to every sphere of, of the faith journey. And that's one of the things that I've found in my own faith journey on this. I have a proclivity to want to anchor in on, oh, this is the way I should do things. But the moment I anchor in on something, this is the way I should do things, is the moment that I've thrown my anchor to one side of that razor's edge and I'm about to fall off and, and, and be entrapped in a certain camp that's actually not going to be helpful and not going to be for my flourishing or the flourishing of people who are around me. So it's, it's one of those pieces that I'm regularly asking myself, okay, um, where could I be offline on this? Where should I try and keep myself more down the center of where, where I'm not falling off in either extreme? Yeah. It's a helpful reminder for all of us, right? Because I think we all have this tendency to fall. Um, well, the pendulum swings, people talk about that, or falling off of, well, I don't know. I grew up in Montana. So they falling off of one side of the horse or the other, or driving into one ditch or the you know. There's all these different analogies, and we all have the tendency to actually go both ways. I think most people think, well, I'm I have a tendency, you know, when they talk about truth and grace. Well, I'm more of a truth person, and I'm more of a grace person. And I think actually, I think all of us have moments where we fall off into one of those. Um, you know, we we lose the tension in in either one of those areas. It just depends on the situation. We have to be recognizing that all the time and try to hold that. I mean, most of the Christian life is this tension, I think, right? I mean, between truth and grace, or even uh, not that I want to dive into this right now, but as I was, I did a really long series on human sexuality in our church and, and talking about this tension that we have to hold between our body and our soul. To, like some people are going to focus too much on our soul and it, to the neglect of the body. And some people are going to focus so much on the body that they neglect the soul. And we have to live in a, in a tension of that. Right. Or, or some people want to, something we already talked about. Some people want to live in a tension of like, well, we only live for the heavenly kingdom and this, this earth means nothing. And it's like, and other people want to live only for the earthly kingdom and then neglect the heavenly kingdom. And we have to live in that kind of attention. Or, uh, or one that I've talked about a lot recently too, living for heavenly rewards, right? We, we have to, we're called to live for that reward in heaven. And yet other people can live for only an earthly reward. It, you know, the, there's this tension constantly just in the Christian life, uh, which makes it 
yeah, we have to be aware that we can, we can fall and we can make a mistake at any step of the way, which is also why it's beautiful that, uh, we're, we're saved by grace <laughs> and not by works. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what you described there was, I, I think a tension that I didn't experience when I was growing up was recognizing there's a tension. Um, because that, as you noted that there's so much good in having a rock solid foundation of teaching and even rote memorization. Um, and so that's, that's, uh, intentionality. I try to work into my life is how do I maintain the tension and recognize that there's always tension. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So we're, we're kind of in a season of reflecting on, uh, everything that just happened at Synod 2023, which there's a lot. Um, so we could reflect on it quite a bit, but why don't you just start off? What, what was your role at Synod and, uh, what advisory committee did you serve on? Uh, so I was a pastor delegate from classes Quinty, um, and the advisory committee I served on, uh, I forget even what the, what it was called, but we're committee number two, which we dealt with the code of conduct and I was the reporter on that committee. Okay. And, uh, what was, uh, I know, you know, we can't really get into, the committee work per se, but, but what was kind of what, so yeah, why don't you dive into a little bit more about the, the work on the code of conduct and maybe one of the things I've been asking is just what was kind of the spirit in your advisory committee? I want to begin by saying probably one of the greatest privileges I had was working on that committee with Matt Ford uh, from mm-hmm. Southern California. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had no idea who this guy was and uh, I'll be honest, uh, I can be prejudicial in my thinking where I thought, great, a guy from California, I'm pretty sure how I know this guy is going to think, whatever. I'll, I'll try and prevent him from going too far off the rails to find that Matt was the complete opposite of what I expected. And uh, I wonder if he was perhaps having the same sort of thoughts about me going, oh, great, I've got one of these Canadian nut jobs on my committee. What's he going to be like? Um, he was such a joy to work with. Just his his clarity of thought and his theology uh, were are rock solid. Um, but then he's also got a really deeply pastoral heart that like after we would have like a, a day of meetings, uh, the two of us would sit down and we'd chat over, uh, over a pint or something like that. And he would just say, Hey, I'm just noticing this dynamic in the group and in, in, in the group. Like, how can we overcome that? So that way it doesn't become polarized. Like what, what can we do to make sure people are being really well heard and honored and yet steer this in a helpful direction? Um, that was probably one of the greatest privileges I had was working with him. My personality is analytical, which I think we worked really well with each other because I was just analyzing all the data bits, kind of going, well, I'm seeing this happening and that happening right here. And I think we could do these sorts of things. And it was just this great back and forth that we regularly had with each other outside of the meeting that helped us figure out, okay, how can we set the table really, really well uh, for us to have as good of a conversation as possible that's focused, that's clear, and that gets to uh, an end result that we can all actually uh, agree upon. And so the fact that we were able to present the uh, the code of conduct with no minority report, and actually when we got to voting on what we were doing, uh, if there was a dissenter, I don't remember it. And it was just this incredible spirit of, okay, we're, we're happy with the work that we did. We, we can all agree on this. Uh, it, it, it was... I say it's it's uh, a tip to Matt's leadership. Matt kept saying it's just the Holy Spirit. Like he said, I was praying through this the whole time, and the Holy Spirit, like this is God. Like there's no way I could have pulled that off. And so I'm like, okay, yeah, I can't can't give Matt all the credit on that. And yet, still, I think the Holy Spirit works powerfully through open and willing vessels. Mm-hmm. And Matt was totally an open and willing vessel. 
Awesome. Yeah, I was really surprised. I was highly expecting a minority report coming out of that committee. And so, yeah, tip to both of your guys' leadership as well. So the, the funny thing on that was uh, when Matt and I were laying out, how are we going to set up the agenda for this? Uh, we picked some things that we knew we had to do we, that we figured were quote unquote low hanging fruit. So items that were like, okay, this should just be able to pass with no problems. Uh, the majority of those things were like, hey, thank this person for their service, that sort of stuff, which went through. And, and then the second item we had up for that was, okay, this would be a no-brainer. Let's just pass what Synod 2022 said about uh, how the delegation is going to work. It shocked us. We're like, oh, man, here we are on day one, and we've already got a minority report forming. Like, <laughs> how did this happen? <laughs> and at the same point in time, the, the, the objections that came against it, I can understand them. You know, the the importance of the deacon's voice and wanting to be able to put that forward, yet um, I found that to be, I personally found that to be too legalistic, hence why I signed my name onto the majority report. Um, I appreciated the flexibility of what 2022 said, but there were, there were strong voices that said, no, we, we can't allow that flexibility because that's going to just remove the deacon voice. So it's like, all right, what can we do to help you write a good report? And mm -hmm. away we went. Yeah, that's super, super helpful. Um I, I want to back up just a little bit, Ryan. Um, so I'm wondering, was this your first time at Synod? My second time at Synod. This was your second time, and you were already a reporter. I avoided Synod for a long period of time, and then I <laughs> felt that there was probably an obligation that, okay, if I'm dipping my toe back in this water, I do have enough ministry to throw me into whatever position you want me to. And so the synodical whatever the team is that builds this, they took my yes and they threw me in as a reporter. Okay. Yeah. That's helpful. What was your first thought when you saw that you were a reporter? Um, I was up for the challenge. Um, kind of excited for it actually, because one of the things that I've, so a little bit about the, the Canadian context and how we share our, or how our meetings go and churches here. Uh, we're very different than the Americans where Canadian pastors cannot, or it's strongly advised that we are not the chair of council. And the reason for that is because CRA, our version of the IRS, has pretty strict and tight laws about who can be in positions of power and authority uh, on not-for-profits. So technically, I could be the chair of the elders because that's not really dealing with any financial stuff. But if I were the chair of, uh, of council, which does deal occasionally with financial stuff, that would be a significant red schmear that could jeopardize all kinds of our non-charitable status. So with that being the case, I do not chair meetings over here at all. Uh, and yet, as I've worked alongside of a number of different chairs over the year, uh, years, um, I came to the conclusion I've got pretty good capacity being able to listen to what's happening in the room and helping a chair figure out, okay, this is what's happening in the room. This is probably the direction we should take that. And I've been a wingman for a number of years that with that experience, I'm like, I could probably be a reporter and a chair in these capacities with no problems. Awesome. I was not so excited when I found out I was chairing committee eight. <laughs> what? Your committee, I would not have been happy about being uh, a person uh, in, in that position there either. So yeah, uh, I'll I, uh, on that. I remember looking through all of our stuff and same mentality, like, okay, let's have some low hanging fruit. Let's try to find something. And I'm like, there are no low hanging fruit. There's nothing. There's nothing here <laughs> that's non-controversial and not really hot right now. So we just got to dive right in <laughs> with both feet. 
So, you know, we've had some time to to reflect on Synod now. It's been, I don't know, has it been not quite a month, but almost three, four weeks. Um, so I'd be curious to hear from you, Ryan, um, what encouraged you about Synod 2023? I think what encouraged me about, uh, about that Synod was, as you noted, meeting so many solid Orthodox thinkers, pastors, elders, um, Probably the lay folk, uh, elders and deacons, was just the most encouraging for me. Hearing the the depth of articulation that they had, the, the passion that they had, um, the desire to see the church to grow through legitimate deep evangelism of bringing people to to Christ, to have their hearts changed and transformed. Like through those kind of conversations, it it was incredibly encouraging for me. Um, and to see that our denomination isn't nearly as fractured and fragmented as I assumed it was, because I believe the Canadian context is much more fractured, uh, especially on this issue, than the American context is. Um, uh, prior to Synod 2022, uh, I was seriously wondering, what is my future within this denomination? Because I see the way that our classes is divided and many of the classes that are around us here in Ontario and I legitimately didn't know how it was going to go because I've heard voices from Grand Rapids. And I assumed the whole denomination was similarly um, divided 50-50, 60-40. And I didn't know which way the 60 or the 40 would have been on that. Um, so when I got off of my sabbatical, I was on sabbatical uh, during 2022. And when I got came back from, uh, from a study leave, it was just after Synod concluded, I was shocked at what the numbers and what the votes were looking like on this kind of going, Oh, okay. So obviously I'm in a very different pocket of our denomination here than the majority of our denomination is. Yeah. Yeah. That's been encouraging to a lot of people. I mean, it's been discouraging to some, I know that, you know, I've talked to a number of, and I hate the labels, but it's just easier language, more progressive minded people who, uh, you know, they've questioned whether the last two synods have been representative of the denomination because they were under the impression that that it was more of a 50-50 split or even more, there were more progressives than conservatives. So they keep saying, well, these last two synods aren't representative of the CRC. Um, and yet I've been saying for a long time, well, once you get out into, I've been doing ministry in rural, the rural Midwest my whole life, you, when you talk to people in the Midwest, this is a pretty settled issue. I mean, they're, they're going to be solidly on the more orthodox, whatever side you, you want to say of this. And that's a, that's a standard operating. So I've been saying for a long time that we're probably two thirds, 70%. And probably once you filter down into the, the people in the pew, um, I bet we're probably closer to 80%. Of, of the members of our congr of the CRCNA that that are taking a more orthodox view of human sexuality, and so um, it's one of the things we've tried to do with this podcast is just try to encourage people because not many people felt that way. I've heard numerous people have emailed us since we started this podcast and said, "I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea there were this many good pastors. I thought I was one of the only conservative voices left in the CRC." You know, kind of Elijah syndrome, and it's like actually. That's the it is the majority of people that are that are standing here, and so yeah, that is that is encouraging. Yeah, well, and and I think there's a a, a cultural chill effect that we're experiencing in both in both countries. I think Canada is experiencing it more harshly than the United States, but what's constantly being pushed out through the media because um, we have no no alternative with media. Like you've got CNN and Fox, which are kind of different camps. Uh, all Canadian media basically touts the same story over and over again. 
Um, so there is no pushback uh, through Canadian media, which causes people who think conservatively to kind of feel like, whoa, I'm just completely on my own here. And within Canadian legislation, some of the bills that have been passed in the last number of years have been wildly progressive and uh, not really tethered at all to, to reasonableness. Um, I'm not sure if you heard anything about Bill C-4, which which claims to be anti-conversion therapy, which I'm like, OK, I, from what I understand of what conversion therapy is that they're that they're supposedly aiming at, I'm anti that conversion therapy as well. But when you read the bill and how broad the bill is, it's like it's one directional. You can convert someone from cisgender to whatever else, and that's OK, but you can't go back the other way. And the bill is vague enough that anyone, if, if I were to have a person come into my office and just say, hey, I'm struggling with my identity, and I pray with them, the Holy Spirit shows up and just gives them great insight as to who they actually are in Christ, and they find freedom and joy. And if they were a non-conforming gender identity, and they just, through that, became conforming, I could I could uh, receive, receive jail time on that. Like, that's how wild the bill is. Now, talking with lawyers on that, lawyers said... No, that would never actually happen. But another, as a pushback on on the lawyer on this, another lawyer piped up saying, "Technically, you're right. It could go that way, but the likelihood of it ever going there." And you know, great. All the caveats aside, but the fact that the bill could be read that way is an indication about how strong of a push we are experiencing in Canada to to embrace uh, these new forms of sexuality. Um, and, and I believe that in general the majority of Canadians are just feeling that this is where culture is going. I'm going to be labeled as something who knows what, and my words are going to be taken and twisted so wildly. I, I just better keep my mouth shut. Yeah. And, and I think I saw this in the local church level at, a, at our uh, January classes. Meeting. There was an overture that was um, coming against the human sexuality report, asking for us to reverse some of the decisions from and uh, I spoke out against that motion on the floor. And there were only, I think, three people who spoke out against the motion or overture on the floor. And there's maybe around four or five who spoke in favor. In general, it, it was interesting how few people wanted to speak on it. And I wonder how much of it is just the chilling effect that if you speak on it, how are people going to take or abuse the words you've used and, and, and turn them for something else? What was really telling to me was as that meeting had concluded and I was gathering up my stuff, I had four people come up to me and just say, hey, really appreciate what you said there because I think the exact same stuff and I didn't know how to articulate it and you nailed my thoughts. And then I went, okay, I wonder how true that is across the board. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's 100%. I had the same thing um, at Synod last year as well, right? There were a num numerous people who, uh, and in particular, this it was really interesting um, the, the highest number of people at Synod last year, this year I was pretty quiet. I was like, I gave all of my energy and effort into getting our advisory committee work done. Once we got to the floor, I was not going to say much this year. Um, but last year I spoke quite a bit and I had a number of uh, conservative minded uh, women who came up to me and said, thank you for what you said from the floor. Cause I just did not feel comfortable standing up and saying that. Um, but I appreciate that, that you were willing, willing to say that because yeah, you, you, and I, it was, it was one of those really weird things in my brain. Like, I wonder why, um, conservative minded women were having a hard time standing up and, and speaking to some of those kind of issues. But, um, but yeah, I, I think you're right though. There is this general, just cultural chill 
being put and it's hard to speak up, right? It's hard to speak up about anything right now, just because things can get so polarized. And, 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 you know, I, I even noticed it in myself, um, I mean, on the podcast, I just kind of say what I say and hopefully pray that God protects me <laughs> in that. But, but, you know, there, there's times where you're in conversations with people and it feels like people are trying harder to misunderstand you than to actually yes. understand you, right? Where it's yes. like, no, you're just trying to take everything I say and twist it and distort it to, to make me look like the bad guy when I'm, when I'm not, I'm just trying to, trying to figure out here. And that's really, uh, that's really kind of the situation we're in right now. Yeah. And, and I've been working pretty intently on how I react and respond to those sorts of conversations because they are definitely happening with increasing uh, frequency. And I've been increasingly blunt just to, to interject and say, no, that is not what I said. And that, that that's a misrepresentation of me. And I would never actually believe something like that. Mm-hmm. And help me understand why would you even think that that's what I said when I know this is what I said over here. Um, and it's it's interesting that when you or I found that when I push back on that, I either get people go they'll quickly chill out and go, oh, okay, hold on, what were you actually saying? Help me understand, and and they'll be reasonable on that, or they'll just railroad ahead as if they know my heart and my soul better than I do, and saying, oh no no, don't try and. I know what's actually going on there. It's like, that's ridiculous. You don't know what's actually going on inside of my mind that better than I, how arrogant that you think you've got some sort of sovereign vision into my own mind that, you know what I'm thinking better than I can actually articulate what I'm thinking. Like that's pain. Yeah, it's bad. And, and that's where we, we're going to have to learn more and more wisdom. Yeah. I I keep thinking of, of Proverbs, you know, the two passages, right? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him, right? And uh, we're going to have to have wisdom to know at what point. You know, I've had I've had a kind of a principle over the years where um, I'll get done with a sermon or whatever, and somebody will come up to me and like, I want to talk to you about something you said. And... Uh, and you can tell if they're if they're actually wanting to have a conversation, wanting to understand, then I'm more than willing to spend as long as I need to to help them understand what I was saying. But there have been times where someone just wants to fight, just wants to argue with you. And I'm like, you know what? I don't have time to have this conversation right now. Um, come back when you're ready to to hear it, because I'm not gonna fight with someone who doesn't really there's who's not teachable, right? That that's not the the point. I've got lots of time for someone who's struggling and trying to figure things out, but someone who just wants to fight, it's not, it's kind of like beating your head against the wall. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. So what, uh, so, you know, I, I, one of the things we've been saying a lot coming out of Synod, everybody left Synod 2023 discouraged to, to some degree. Um, and you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, but, but what were some of the things that, that did discourage you uh, coming out of Synod? the ending I, I the ending was just incredibly disappointing yeah. um and it's something that it it surprised me with how quickly it spun the way that it spun um and and as i said i, I typically analyze like I'm, i've got an analytical mind and it, and it, it took me off guard because quite often i can feel when a room or in general like that there's things that are going off the rails there's lack of trust breaking down so some of the accusations that uh I've lost trust in the body. It's no longer a deliberative process. It, that, that to me was just 
mind boggling because the amount of space that was given for, for conversation was substantial. Um, and what, what to me seemed like was happening was that as we continue to go down the traditional road, uh, it's, it seemed like, yes, that the train was heading in a certain direction and it wasn't going to change. But then the pushbacks became more and more not related to the emotions that were on the floor. Right. And more, well, this, this isn't helpful now for throwing things this way because that's not actually dealing with the motion. That's dealing with what we dealt with a day ago. Mm-hmm. And we already made that decision. And so it, it seemed like wires weren't connecting properly. And then I don't want to get my cynical mind involved. But if you want my cynical mind involved, I'm like filibustering was happening right here. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as as I heard more and more about the way that there was camps that had had aligned themselves in different places, knowing that uh, Committee 8's work would have to have um, the chair recuse himself because of his place in the Unloco Committee, and knowing that Chad has a place with Abide, I, I have to question, was there an intentional plot right now to go, well, once Chad takes chair... We're going to throw everything out there so that way it's going to make it look like he's charging forward with an agenda. He's going to have mud in his face. Abide's going to look terrible. That's really the only reason why I can make sense as to why once your work, Committee 8 Works, got up there, that suddenly the whole tone just took a significant snap, is that there was an intentional shift to try and throw mud on the face of Chad, one of the faces of, of Abide. Hmm. I, I hope that I'm wrong on that, that there wasn't a concerted effort, but there was just more of a sense of absolute defeat overwhelming people. But that's the conclusion that I'm, that I'm kind of sitting on. Hmm. Yeah, no, uh, Ryan, just to chime in here. Uh, I hope you're wrong too, but uh, I suspect you're probably not. Um, and I say that if in the last podcast episode that Jason and I did a couple weeks ago, um, I intentionally didn't use the word filibuster. Um, but I do think the more people listen to Synod and the more people understand, wow, this person has gotten up to speak to something that's not related to the motion over 15 times. Um, you begin to put the pieces together and go, you're not leaving me too much room to think anything else other than this was an intentional, uh, effort on the part of people to slow and stall this process. Um, so it, again, so, so like, why, did, why did, why did you intentionally not use the word filibuster? Because I was trying to be gracious and charitable, <laughs> uh, <laughs> as I try to do, but sometimes when my political correctness doesn't kick in, um, I, I'm, I, I would be more happy and friendly to use those words. So you're only saying what I was thinking. I mean, at a, at a, and I'm not, I don't know where I stand on all of that, to be honest. I'm I'm not, I haven't taken an official, I mean, yes, when I left Synod, I definitely was using terms like filibustering and, and there was, I felt like there was a lot of political, you know, I was being accused leading up to Synod of like, oh, well, this guy's, somebody said that I, I've been leading a, a holy war against the progressives of the CRC and people were all wound up that I was chairing committee eight and all of these things and of being accused that I was maybe trying to manipulate and political, which uh, anybody who actually knows me knows that this is just not how I roll. I hate playing politics. So I'd just rather say it like it is, which is why everybody kind of knows where I stand on things um, because I'm not political. 
Um, but I just was, so I get really wound up then when I feel like some political play was going on, um, at, at the end. And so I don't know what all happened. And I would hope that, that you were wrong. I think because of, yeah, I don't know. I, I think just because of Chad being the, the kind of one of the, the main face of abide anyways, that the progressives just automatically don't trust him. And so the moment, um, the moment he had made that motion to cease debate, which again, I said this before, and I don't know this for sure. Cause, but I was sitting up there by the, by the officers at that point, cause that, uh, my committee was reporting and I'm almost certain that Chad didn't just come up with that on his own, that the officers made a decide decision together. Usually when that's going to happen, the officers say, Hey, I think it's time to, to do that. Now, was that all calculated to get mud on his face? I don't know. But the moment Chad's going to do that, you know, anybody who doesn't trust him already, who already feels like abide, they think abides doing all this political maneuvering, which um, we're not, but uh, um, there's going to be a lack of trust. And uh, there was already trust was deteriorating. Um, but, but I was still caught off guard when people started standing up and walking out. I never in a million years saw that coming. And, uh, and it really, it, it's devastating that like, I don't know how many people walked out, 11 or 12 people, um, can derail, um, 180 delegates worth of work. Yeah. And there's such a rich irony in that because the rich irony that I see with them walking out was I was unaware that that was even brewing, that that's the kind of move that was coming. Um, and so they make a statement and they walk out which that means that there's no opportunity for us to even hear or even have a conversation, but where are you at? Or, Hey, how can we recalibrate as a body? If this is true. And if you're experiencing this, what, what things have caused you to experience this? Because I don't have any answers to that. The only answers that I have to that is as was noted, the the way the numbers came in on the vote was okay. There's a pretty strong move this way. And I, I suspect the majority of people who voted that way, myself included, voted with the majority, many of us just chose not to speak because we hear the, the, the speaking that's coming from the other side going, well, that's not speaking to the motion. I can't really add anything that the committee has added here. What would adding my voice to the queue do on any of this other than prolong it? So I chose simply not to speak on pretty much anything because already been said, don't want to belabor this point any further. And if, if the other side was looking for, and I hate talking about the other side, if those who want to see a different outcome from committee eight were hoping for um, better dialogue, I think they should have asked better questions. They should have laid things out or highlighted where this is where this is not right. Like help us understand. I would have been more interested to get into a queue and have a conversation with, like, hey, that's a really good question. Let's Let's dig into that. You know, perhaps the committee is going off the rails on this. But none of that was ever brought forward. It was things that were tangential to, to the motion, which made it really hard to have any dialogue. And then they get up without a dialogue, which it just, it, it breaks the spirit of what sin is supposed to be. Yeah. Well, and another thing that I think that does is that squelches debate. And that actually squelches conversation that they were accusing us of doing all throughout the week. So I think you're exactly right, Ryan. And the other thing that I would say is, you know, when motions to cease debate, were voted on by the body. And then after prayer time, they'd say, well, I'm not ready for debate to be done. Well, the greatest thing that you could do right now, other than making a scene about this 
is to vote in such a way as to do honor to your conscience. Just yes. vote no, and then whatever happens, happens. Uh, that That's the way that would have been, I think, the most mature fashion for somebody who is in the minority camp to behave in. And they yeah. chose not to do that. And even record a negative vote and give your reasons for why. I mean, they could have recorded a negative vote and uh, and given reasons why that they don't trust the whatever, you know, but um, but to walk out was just it was so out of order. Um, that was it was. Yeah, it was pretty devastating. Yeah. Um, I felt dishonored by it that. It, it's one of these pieces that takes you a while to kind of process through now because I drove and I live in Eastern Ontario. I had a good solid uh, 10 hour drive to get back home. So it gave me a lot of time by myself to think it through. Oh my. Um, but, but one of the things that, that really struck me as I was driving home on that was th- this just feels really like dishonoring to my view and my voice that if all of your words weren't able to change my mind that somehow my voice and my mind don't really matter. And therefore I'm not even worthy of being in a conversation with you anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, it, it felt really dishonoring to, I feel like there was assumptions thrown onto why people voted the way that they did that here I am voting with the majority. So the way that things were stated as people walked out was really a flinging mud at everyone who is voting with the majority. And I was highly dishonored by that. And, and, and how, how can I even, get back into a place of of harmony with my brothers and sisters on that uh, when when I feel like I was just defamed without really having any conversation as to why am I voting the way that I'm that's all we have for this week if you want to help us out and support the messy reformation another thing you can do is head on over to the messy look in the menu bar and find join the reformation by clicking on that you can sign up for our newsletter where you'll get episodes sent right directly to your email inbox and it will give us the opportunity to communicate with our audience which is one of the biggest struggles of a podcast so head on over there and sign up for our newsletter now stay tuned next week for part two of our reflections on synod with ryan brom but until then don't forget this is christ church and he bought it with his blood and we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock so keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine Preach the word in season and out of season, and keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.